When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Joby Harold is the executive producer and writer of the Disney Plus Lucasfilm limited series, Obi-Wan Kenobi. And we're with him today to talk about the further adventures of the Jedi. Tell me about landing. I mean, this is a dream gig, writing for a Star Wars series, in particular, Obi-Wan Kenobi. How does the offer come to you? And then when you go in, is it, are you there with lookbooks? Are you there? Do you have an idea of the twist where they want to take things? Uh, it came, you know, through a lovely conversation I was having with Lucasfilm and, and getting along very well with everybody over there. And then them asking if it was a character I love, which it truly, truly is. And then um, showing me where they were in the development of the, of the character thus far. And they'd been trying for a while to do it with some fantastic writers. And uh, I told them just how I would continue to sort of run with the ball. And yeah, I did have some visual stuff that I showed them too. I had a whole, you know, I spent a weekend just marinating on it and came in and said, you know, here's where I think you could go. Here's some great imagery I found. Here's how I think it could feel emotionally. But it was very much a continuation of where they've been and just, we were like-minded in, um, in, in where it could go. Can you share where, where exactly they were? Because I, it, it's no secret that there was a plan to do standalone movies. And then unfortunately, I, I think what happened with Solo kind of, and the coincidence, you know, the, the, the crossroads of Solo with the idea of launching a streaming service changed everything. Um, where were they? Like, did you inherit any, any, I mean, there's very obvious things. He's out in the desert, uh, the the twins the twins are children he doesn't meet luke for quite some time key point but what did did you were there any was there anything that had translated over uh, from from the previous development yeah i mean as i said so it had been previously developed by some um very clever people so there had been some things that were explored that definitely felt interesting and compelling and that that we inherited um and and valuing those things and you know, recognizing that it, it wasn't to be a feature anymore, and the opportunity in it being a TV show because this was more real estate for character, and how what that could mean for the character, and and the choices you could make to actually kind of slow the role that you would otherwise need to, you know, if this were a feature, you'd be beholden to a different structure and a different rhythm. Um, that felt like a great opportunity. So it was very much Deborah Chow leading the charge in regards to her instincts on what that could and should be. And then uh, sort of the creative team were kind of locking arms and saying, "All right, starting from this place." where can we go um and then asking all the questions that the fans would ask and and sort of stress testing everything but it was a very collaborative process i i don't mean to throw boba book of boba fett under the bus but a very prized character i was very upset with how that executed i almost felt that mandalorian stole his thunder i i felt in many ways mandalorian should have been boba's story 
that's another thing. But Obi-Wan Kenobi is very solid. What was what was your way into it? Was it was it that he was in hiding? Was it that he was he's he's kind of like his his he's kind of hiding and he's he's lost his powers? Was that the way in? Like what is there any way you could tease kind of like the jumping off off point for his arc here? Yeah, um, very much so. It, it, when I'd heard they were doing um, sort of Obi-Wan as a feature or whatever, I'd always, in my imagination, sort of ask myself, oh, that's interesting. Like, what, what would that be? Where would he be? And in my mind, he'd always be sitting on the rock, watching Luke, keeping his distance in the rhythm of a life, the patience, right? The patience, the calm, the patience. So I kept thinking about that, wanting to feel that at the beginning of the first episode, not just going for 11 right away, but sitting with the rhythm of a character who's been sitting for 10 years. And what that would feel like, what that would do to a man, what that would do to a Jedi. Having that be the beginning place and feeling that patience and that rhythm, and then finding a true call to action that is consistent with you know, the hero's journey and everything therein, which is inherent to the original trilogy and everything George built with that sort of mythic Campbell structure, feeling the patience of the normal world, feeling the call to action, feeling the refusal of the call, feeling him accepting is the only thing that could take him away from Luke. Those things felt like bedrock because they felt cinematic and they felt mythic. And that felt consistent with the tone of the original trilogy. So that was very important to me at the beginning. And then it becomes about the chapters of the adventure along the way, but also looking at the entirety of it as a three act structure and as a story and as an arc for Obi-Wan that does connect the prequels and the original trilogy. But it all starts with, with um, tone and that's dead. And that's, you know, finding something that feels um, like the right, kind of needle thread between the prequels and the original trilogy even though i'm an original trilogy um kid that's what i grew up with the um the other thing is so while he can't interact with luke leah leia is fair game and it, it, this is a wonderful while it is about obi-wan kenobi this is very much leia's story as well can you can you talk about that um, you know, like one of the things that that intrigues me here is how she's captured uh, a couple of times. It, and, and it's almost like she's the princess that's always captured. Can you, I mean, it all works, everything works, but can you talk about that? I found that to be a very interesting mo motif um, that she is the princess that is always captured, but at the same time, that's what makes her tough. Well, Look, the capturing of princess allows two things, right? One, it allows you an opportunity to show how tough she is as a captured princess, which we've, which is a nice way to test and challenge her character in a new hope, obviously, but also here, what's the, you know, the 10 year old incarnation of that. And getting to see that is, is interesting because you get to see a different version of the captive princess. But more importantly, what is important enough to get Obi-Wan out of hiding? What's important enough to get him to go into a dark cave in episode four? She's the only thing that's, you know, stakes wise is profound enough to pull him out and to, to change his course. So she is, um, you know, it's an opportunity to show the spirit of the character, but it's an, also an opportunity to test Obi-Wan and his conviction and how far he'll go, which he needs to grow from just the guy in the cave to everything he'll become. So it was, it, it's, <laughs> I don't like to think of the princess that's always captured, but it is interesting that it, it allows you from the storytelling point of view to explore things that fundamentally are really important to Obi-Wan's journey, which is the goal. All the choices have to be reinforcing the arc of that character, otherwise they're, they become sort of superfluous. 
Can you talk about, and I know some fans, if they're listening to this, they're going to say, oh my God, I can't believe he's asking this. But this is for the non-belief, you know, for, for anyone that, you know, what's interesting is Dave Filoni has created a whole new set of Star Wars for a whole new generation. And if you grew up with it in the 70s and the 80s, it, it is, and you're not familiar with that universe. It's a whole different, it's a whole different um, sphere. But can you talk about the Grand Inquisitor and the whole sister, the sister brother system there with the, with the dark, with the dark Jedi hunters? Yeah. Uh, first of all, Dave's a genius and he is, what he's done is extraordinary in expanding the universe and really carrying everything George built forward. Um, I can't speak enough to to what he's brought to it, uh, and so the 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 opportunity here was very much like who is the personification of that which hunts Obi Wan, and what does that mean? What are the different iterations of that? And everything David built allowed the Inquisitors to be part of that conversation, and the Grand Inquisitor to be the head of that conversation. Reaver as a character was something that had already been explored, and, and we inherited as the notion of sort of a different way into an Inquisitor. So uh, for us, I think it was an opportunity to. Um, test Obi-Wan in a different way through a different lens. And the iteration of those characters was very much, you know, the byproduct of the actors working with Deborah Chow and finding their choices within that. And within that, the look and the design and all those things come together as they do in, you know, in the filmmaking process. So for me, story-wise, they're an important piece of the puzzle because I didn't want Vader on page two walking down the street hunting. I wanted to slow, as I said, slow everything down. So the slow unpeeling of antagonism, what antagonism means, front foot antagonism versus the stuff we're burying. I wanted to play Vader if we could. Um, that They were an important part of the puzzle. Fundamentally, it's about Jedi hunting, Jedi's in hiding. Um, who's the ultimate Jedi hunter? Who's the ultimate Jedi? And that, uh, they were just such a massive part of it. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Can you tease about what Vader's, Vader's arc and purpose is here? I mean, obviously we know that he's heading toward finding his son ultimately. But and 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 this is very much about getting Obi-Wan. There is he is he angry? Is this funny? An old Star Wars fan asking another old Star Wars fan, why is he so angry at Obi-Wan? I, I mean, is it just they're just on two different sides? Or is it just is this is just a philosophical divide? That's always, that's just more of a gap. No, I don't think it's intellectual. I think it's very emotional. I think it's to do with, you know, the, the feelings of betrayal and the past and Padme and like the, the, everything the prequels established and built. And, and to me, what's interesting about the characters we find him is that this is a legacy show. And obviously we're 10 years into the legacy of, you know, the Obi-Wan Kenobi character post episode three, but also Leia and also Vader slash Anakin, that's up to interpretation. 
and it being that being part of the journey of the show as well it was an important thing to do as a legacy show to not just ignore that because those elements are a part of obi-wan's story they are they are the obi-wan story you can't i said that before you can't tell the obi-wan story without including anakin and vader because it's that which defines him so um the vader of it all was was massively important and as was having hayden be a part of it and Ewan and the sort of bringing back those characters and those actors that have been in the prequels and then including them in the language of the original trilogy a little bit if you like and thus bridging the gap with everything Deb was building um, and everything we sort of behind closed doors were talking about as a team was very much to try to service that episode 3.5 you know and and just do the best we could to honor the characters the actors playing the characters and where we all knew it was going have you heard about a season two yet? I, uh, beyond being asked about it constantly, have just literally just been thinking about this for so long as a close-ended story that my mind is so focused on, on this as a sort of a, a limited um, that I haven't thought beyond it. Um, but um, he's a great character. They're all amazing characters. The, um, are you working on another Star Wars series? <laughs> I can't speak to any of these questions. <laughs> um, but look, I love Star Wars and the experience of working on Star Wars hasn't changed that in any way. It's only made it, you know, uh, a bigger part of my life. Um, I feel lucky to be a part of this one. Now, you know, one of the things that you had developed, uh, to my knowledge, you know, quite, uh, quite extensively was, was there was supposed to be a bigger... King Arthur uh, franchise at Warner Brothers. Do you ever think that could get revived? I mean, I, I understand there was a massive mat world building for this. Um, unfortunately, the movie didn't do what it was supposed to do. Um, but do you think that could get revived at, at some point in time, either in streaming um, or, or anywhere else? Yeah, it's a, it's a question that comes up too. And it, 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 I, it's a world I love. There are characters that I love speaking to mythology. Um, and it was, you know, it was it, the direction that the feature took wasn't necessarily consistent with what I built and, and written at the time. Uh, it sort of, you know, you, it, it, had, it had been, um, it had run in a different direction. And so the what I had done was very different and the universe that would have come out of that would have been very different. So I'm not sure from that starting place you could expand it in the same way. Um, it exists as a 150 page Bible that I have on my desk with a bunch of illustrations and stories and outlines and scripts and, and art. And it, it's, um, you know, it's a, it's a thing now that I get to share with my kids and imagine what could have been, but I don't know from the starting place that we could get there, but I would love it if we could, because it was very much like Star Wars. It was a grand um, world building exercise with weapons and creatures and stories and tales and origins and teen movies and little bits and pieces. And then can you tease for us Transformers Rise of the Beasts? Um, I, I had heard that it, it's based on more of the animal looking Transformers. Yeah, that, that definitely a part of it. It was, um, that was just something that uh, I, you know, been lucky enough to be talking to Paramount and they asked what I would think of that world. And I just got to sort of go back to the, to the beginning of Transformers and really think like, what is it about that that captures the imagination of so many people and, and my kids and, and generations? And how do you get to the root of that, the soul of that, which 
uh, Bumble Bumblebee had done very, very well. Um, and then just sort of expand it a little bit and stay true to the soul of that and then include some new characters that you refer to and then build something that could in success continue to build and just find the right timeline, the right place, the right soul, the right characters for that and then have that continue on. I actually you know, did that and went straight into Star Wars afterwards so it continued on past me. But it, um, yeah, I'm, I'm getting to do those things or Star Wars or Flash or Arthur or Wick or any of those things. It's each time really fun and each time sort of an exercise in, in reminding myself I'm a fan of those things first and foremost. Can you share with us your writing day? How does that go? Are you, are you a strict eight, like Michael Giacchino writes original scores on like banker's hours, eight to five with a lunch break. I don't know how he does it because everyone over it, and that's a testament to his genius. Uh, you know, I, I always hear that, but what is it like for you? Are you a late night writer? Do you have to write at 9am? Are you, do you write steady? Do you get? Look, I, I, now I might do banker's hours because that man is such a genius that if it's working that well, I think that's clearly the, that's how you do it. Um, I used to write through the night and be very dramatic. Um, as I was before, I used to, you know, burn through a pack of cigarettes and, and write till dawn and think I was awesome. Um, but that's not tenable and it's ridiculous. Uh, I have, you know, a wife and kids and I need to be there for bedtimes and dinners and stuff. So now the key for me is I just won't write after dinner. Um, when I used to do that, that sense tends to bleed into your sleep and, and you start breaking story in your dreams and that's no, that's very healthy. So as early as I can, and then I'll have a sandwich. <laughs> and that's sometimes my day will just be so much writing that at the end of the day, my kid says, how's your day? And I just tell them what I had for lunch because that's the only thing that was different from the day before. When you're, in, when you're in the writing process, you spend months just kind of in that rhythm of um, keeping the same sort of day job hours. Can you tell us about breaking into the business? Um, was it, I, I, was it with, was it with Awake or was it just one of, like, did you have three scripts that you had floated to, to a potential rep in a certain genre and you said, I want to work within this genre? Yeah, no, I, I, I was in New York, I was writing specs. I, I wanted to direct, so I wrote a movie I could direct and, and the production company that, you know, was making that movie exposed it to um, my, who are still my reps. And I got signed by CAA when I was like, very lucky to be signed when I was quite young. And, and then uh, got that movie made and then that script was a calling card. And then Warner Brothers uh, gave it to um, Zach and Debbie. And then I got to write Army of the Dead. And then that was my first sort of, Hollywoody script, bigger budget script, and that went really well. And because of that, opened doors. And then just sort of, I was able to convert when the opportunities came and really worked with Warners for a while. Um, and then that led to Edge of Tomorrow. And then, and then I got that movie made. And then that all really helped sort of push me on. Um, but it was, it was just um, when the opportunities came, just concentrating <laughs> and being ready. And then Edge of Tomorrow. I mean, I, I, I always hear some buzz about a sequel. Do you think that there is one in the, the, the foreseeable future? I don't know. You'll, you have to ask the team, man. I mean, that is, you know, it's an amazing world and really rich and very much a filmmaker-driven world. And I feel lucky to have been a part of it. But there are many places you could take it. And I know they've been working on one. Um, but, you know, that's a Warner's question. Joby Harrell, thank you so much. Thanks, man. It was a pleasure. Nice talking. Pleasure. Take care. Take care.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. 